Good morning. That didn't sound quite as booming as I was hoping. Good morning. Oh, there I am. Okay. So um, the first song we're going to be singing together is This Is The Air I Breathe, which is a lovely song, but I would like you to, uh, it's a very simple song, so it makes it very easy to pick up the lyrics as we sing it. And the proclamation that we're making is that uh, God's presence living with us is like the very air that we breathe. This word is our daily bread. So when we sing things, it's best if it's true. So I would like you to try to get yourself in a, in a frame of mind where this becomes your prayer, not your fake declaration that this is already true, but that this becomes true and continues to become more true as we go. With that being said, if you can do so without pain, would you please stand and sing with us? Yeah. 
next song is Open the Eyes of My Heart, which starts out with Open the Eyes of My Heart, I Want to See You.
song we're going to sing together during this time is power of your love uh starts with lord i come to you let my heart be shaped or yeah changed sorry renewed Oh 
season of the year. I pray that I would not be a Grinch, that you would give me the desire to spread your word with a renewed zeal because of what people are claiming to be celebrating. Father God, I pray that you would draw us nearer to one another and nearer to you, Lord. I pray that you would bless this time together. I thank you for each one that was able to come out this morning. I pray that you would bless those that weren't able to come. Father God, I pray that you would help me as I try to divert, as I try to divide your word rightly. I pray that you would give me the ability to speak something that is worth hearing today. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you sit down, we have people here. Although, if this was a boat, we'd be tipping right now, but that's okay. Make sure you say good morning to each other.
you know, if my phone doesn't start cooperating in a second, I'm going to have to go get one of the five-year-olds from downstairs. All right, anyway, sorry. Good morning. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And that's from Genesis 15:6. As you notice from your bulletin, <clears throat> we are now in the Advent season. Welcome to the Advent season. Advent season is a time when we actually try to focus our minds on this wonderful gift that God has given us through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there are four Sundays in Advent. I can only really do the account of Jesus' birth for one of them, realistically, can't I? And since we have church on Christmas morning, I think I'll save it for that morning. And I hope to see you here. I know that that'll be interesting. You know, how many of you are planning to be on church Christmas morning? I actually plan on seeing a lot of faces we've never seen here before because there's a lot of people that are C&E Christians, which is Christmas and Easter. And if they show up, welcome them. Not that you need my uh, permission or request to do that. But I think one of the most painful things I've ever heard, and I don't know how this ever happened, but someone who visited our church once years ago said, oh, I was there and no one even said hello to me. I'm like, at Valley View? Did you sneak out? But... Again, this was long ago. Let's not beat ourselves up. But if you see a face you don't know, get them in a good way, but get them. And I've brought this up before. One of the most painful things about visiting a church, if you don't know anybody, is the same thing as visiting a lunchroom when you don't know anybody. Who am I going to sit with? Get them. You don't have to know them. That's how we get to know each other. You don't have to hug them, though. Not everybody likes that from strangers. In fact, they make movies about that. Stranger danger. Anyway, I am starting in Genesis 15, uh, which seems like a strange place to start for the Advent season, maybe, but it seems like an appropriate place for me, um, or to me. I think a lot of times when we talk about Jesus, You can ask someone who is totally unchurched, well, who's Jesus? They may even throw out words like Savior and Messiah or our Lord. They might even know God's Son. They might not have a clue about any of it, but they may throw out those words. But if you ask a lot of people in church why Jesus was able to die for our sins, they will get glossy-eyed because they've never really thought it through. And I'm not saying that's true in this room. I'm just saying, Jesus died for your sins. Oh, yes. Okay. But if you go back to Genesis, you'll see there's like a whole building up to why Jesus died for your sins. Now, one of the first places where we can see an illusion, someone alluding to a coming Messiah is, I believe, in Genesis 3, right after the fall of man when God says that he'll put enmity between the woman's descendants and the snake, right? And that one of her offspring will crush the head of the serpent, but he will bruise his heel. Now, 
I, as a Bible-believing Christian, Christian, count that as being a foreshadowing, an illusion of, of what's to come. Uh, one of the strongest ones in the Old Testament, I never saw this way until a few years ago when I was on a Ravander lawn kick. And I'm going to do my best not to just regurgitate Ray Vonderlaan because he's a fantastic teacher. He really is. But um, I have the word of God right here. And that wins every time, no matter how good the teacher, no matter how scripturally based I think they are. I'm going to go back to scripture. If I find myself quoting Mr. Vanderlaan, I will try to say so. I've also gotten some other sources from Jewish communities on this. But... Um, there is nothing new under the sun. If you hear me quoting about Jewish tradition, oh, I read that somewhere. Or I saw a video about it because I was not raised Jewish. If you hear me talking about Bedouin culture, it's because it interests me, those desert-dwelling nomadic people that are still in the desert. I've met some. That is where the extent of my personal knowledge comes from, is I've actually met some. Uh, Everything else I've gotten from a book or a teacher that studied it, right? So don't just take my word for it. If you hear me say something, you're like, well, that sounds weird. We can research it, okay? But what is true and will always be true is the word of God. So I would like to put a bigger emphasis when I'm reading the scriptures than anything I might be saying that's cultural or anything like that. Was that a big enough disclaimer? All right, moving on. We are in Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Notice it's Abram. Not Abraham, but Abram. Because he's not Abraham yet. God changes his name later. His wife's name is also Sarai at this point. It's not until God changes their names that they become Abraham and Sarah. Right? And more on that some other Sunday. The Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. This is, I I love that that's how God introduces himself here to Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. What does a shield do? It protects. I'm your protection, and I'm your very great reward. And that's pretty self-explanatory, your very great reward. Do we think of God as our very great reward, or are we looking to get stuff from God? We're humans, so oftentimes, unfortunately, it's that second part, but is God our very great reward? All right. But Abram said... Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Elizar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This is an incredibly honest prayer. Uh, The word I've heard to describe this in Yiddish culture, or at least in Jewish culture, is chutzpah. It's audacity. And if you read the Psalms, you see that same kind of audacity, stuff that we've learned is impolite to pray. People are just saying it to God. 
Can I make a suggestion for your personal prayer life, not necessarily when you're doing it with an audience in church, but for your personal prayer life? Be honest with God. He already knows. Honestly, God already knows. Be honest with yourself. Be honest to God. Just pray. Abram says, you've given me no children. What can you give me? I'm going to die. I have no generations after me. This guy in my household from Damascus is getting everything. What can you give me? You've given me no children. Do any of you pray like that? Thank you. I'm not saying to pray waving your finger at God, but honesty. With honesty. Because he already knows. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. It indeed, excuse me, if indeed you can count them, you can't, trust me. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. If you were to count the stars one at a time, your descendants will all be dead by the time you would have gotten done counting them. The estimated amount of stars right now, and there's still more being made all the time. So they've decided through telescopic uh, assistance. The last estimate, which is a couple years old, so it could be off now, was four cotillion, which I did not know was a number until I started reading about stars. Cotillion. That's 24 zeros. You don't have enough life to count to a trillion. You will have already been dead for years if you were to count one number a second to get to trillion. We're talking cotillion. I'm just saying this is an astronomic number. Sometimes we don't realize how big numbers actually are. That might be inflation or a sign of the times or the fact that we have computers. I have no idea. But we don't give credence to how enormous numbers really are. That might be my math teacher brain going, I'm sorry. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram didn't have to do a thing except believe what God told him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, if you read the whole account of Abram, Abraham, you see that he is not a perfect human. It's overabundantly clear that he's not a perfect human being, especially when it comes to his wife. However, he believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness, not because he was perfect, not because he did something wonderful. He believed what God promised. I think back to when I was a child, one of the many, many times, and this is a theological issue I had as a child, Children have theological issues. Can you believe it? Is I thought that I lost my salvation every single infraction that I made towards God. So I have asked the Lord into my heart numerous times. I don't even want to guess how many times. 
I don't believe that that's really correct anymore, but I was a child, and I meant it, right? What I do know is Christ will abide in me if I abide in him. I also believe in perseverance of the saints, so I cared. Jesus never left me. I was afraid he did. I'd like to say that changes as we become adults, but it doesn't always. We're afraid that God's going to leave us hanging in the wind, and I assure you, he is not. He will give you shade in the desert. That doesn't mean you won't suffer. If it meant we wouldn't suffer, he wouldn't suffer. If it meant that we wouldn't suffer, his followers wouldn't have all been martyred. We will suffer as everyone suffers. The difference is, is we have hope. We have hope. We have a shield and a great reward in God. Sorry. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. This is fun because Abram's a rich man, but he's a nomad. He has a lot of possessions. He doesn't own the ground he's walking on. He never did. He's a nomad. In fact, the only land he ever buys is to bury his wife. Yet God promises him this vast expanse of land and says, this is going to belong to you and to your descendants. This is completely outside of his spectrum of what wealth is, even. God's vision is always different than ours. We try to limit God based on our narrowness. Abram asked for children. That was it. Maybe in an accusatory way, but he asked for children. And what God said was, all this land, yours. You see all those stars? If you can count them, that's how many offspring you're going to have. So the Lord said to him, oh, excuse me. This is where the real chutzpah comes in here. The audacity. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord. You notice he's still doing this respectfully, though. And I think that's something Christians miss out on. Is in our relationship with God as we speak to him flippantly. Right? Kind of under our breath when we can't find our car keys, but we don't. We don't often have that reverence. But even in this conversation of absolute honesty, when Abram's talking to God, he calls him Sovereign Lord. That's how he starts. Then he's honest, but he knows who he's talking to. Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So how can I know? Now what happens next is the part I never understood as a child because I didn't have a context for it. And if you don't believe what I'm saying at face value, please research it for yourself. Okay. What happens next is that God and Abram enter into a blood covenant together, which is still practiced by Bedouin cultures sometimes. They've gotten very modern with their cell phones, but at the same time, blood covenants are still a thing. And even now, if you were in the right group of nomads in the desert, um, I'm going to pick a couple out of the church Forgive me. 
But if PJ's parents and Kelsey's parents decided, you know what, they seem well-suited. I think that they could build a godly home together. Well, that's when uh, John and, when, and Paul would have gotten together and they would have grabbed a sheep, probably from Kelsey's dad, and they'd cut it in half. And they would agree on certain terms and say, as long as your daughter is a godly woman and is faithful to my son and doesn't embarrass the family, they will live happily ever after. And then John would say his request, as long as your son is a godly man and an honorable man and so and so forth. And then what would happen is they would have these two halves of a sheep because they'd cut it in half and separate it. And then they would both walk through the blood. Signifying, if you break this, or if I break this covenant, I can expect this to be done to me. For you to walk through my blood. Basically, some even dance in it, I guess. I've never seen it. Personally, anyway, I've never seen it. But I've heard that some even dance through the blood. But it's giving the other person the expectation. I realize the gravity here. If either one of us or either one of our children break this covenant, I can expect to die. Right? So that is at least what a blood covenant looks like in desert cultures, or at least what it did. And I believe it's still happening in some places, so I'm going to say what it looks like. And I find that that ceremony is strikingly similar to this account in verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut them in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, if I were entering into a covenant with God Most High, the Lord God, and I am on the verge of entering a covenant where if you break the covenant, it means you die. I think my emotions could very easily be described as a thick and dreadful darkness. An immense fear, a seriousness, a sobriety about what's happening. As a son, oh, excuse me. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's a lot of information to receive about your family. 
Not only are you going to have children that you've waited a hundred years for, but then they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But then they're going to come out with great possessions, and then they're going to come back here. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kizites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What I find interesting, though, is any occurrence that I'm aware of of a blood covenant, both parties have to pass through between the animals. What you'll notice, though, is that God passes through twice. Fire pot and a torch. Abram never passes through. Which in essence, and I, if you don't agree with this, I would love to have a long conversation with you. But I want you to realize how I read this and the implications that I have when I read this. The fact that God went through twice means that he would shed his blood for our unfaithfulness which I read is another illusion, a fourth showing of Jesus. Because Abraham's descendants are unfaithful, as we are, God kept up his part of the covenant throughout history. God is faithful. God even told Abraham in advance they were going to have trouble. But they would come out with great possessions. All his descendants had to do was be faithful. They don't even have the Ten Commandments yet. They just have to be faithful. It's very similar to Adam and Eve. Didn't have the Ten Commandments. They had the commandment. And they could not follow it. Noah's family simply had to recognize that God was God and they were not. And they struggled within a couple generations. Abraham's descendants ended up with 613 laws they weren't able to follow. If you cut it down to the Big Ten, they still can't follow them. Which were then grafted, we were grafted onto this tree. And they apply to us because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill them. Now, some of those commandments, some of those rules, I feel, were fulfilled. Which is why I have such an intense love for pork products. I don't feel I have to follow the law of kosher anymore. Believe it or not, I've actually struggled with that. Because it's in my Bible. But I feel that was fulfilled in Christ because that was just another thing that was supposed to set people apart. If you follow kosher, I'm not trying to tread on you. I'm just saying I don't read it that way. Arise, kill, and eat. 
We are unfaithful. We are unfaithful. That is why God sent his son. Because we can't do it. No matter how simple the command, we are so completely human. Aside from God's direct intervention, people have never been able to be good, even for short periods of time. Which is why God sent his son, why God himself took on flesh and came down, because he said he would. That's how I read this chapter, as God saying, I'm going to pay for your problems. You may not read it that way. And I would love to talk about it sometime. But that is how it played out, isn't it? I'm working backwards when I see God himself coming to earth to pay with his own blood. When I read this verse, if I read it Christocentrically, with what I've heard of blood covenants, it makes perfect sense. As a child, it made absolutely no sense. I could never understand why God wanted to kill so many animals. Has anyone ever struggled with that? Show of hands. How many of you thought God loved killing animals when you read about sacrifices and all those things? As an American young person, it made zero sense to me. Why does God hate sheep so much? And a lamb has to die. Well, lambs are cute. Why would you kill a lamb? It wasn't until much later in life I realized that that's why it's called a sacrifice, is they're not Americans who have a hundred head of whatever. Maybe they did if they're wealthy. But they're people just living and getting by, and the most prized possessions they have are their livestock. And their sin is such a great problem that in order for forgiveness of sin, something has to die. They didn't just grab some random creature of little value. They weren't, they weren't killing, you know, uh, woodchucks. If you're a farmer or anyone else for that matter, there's no practical purpose for having a woodchuck on your property other than damaging your stuff. God didn't require a sacrifice of an unwanted creature with no value to anyone. He wanted their best. Something of great value had to die because it was a big deal. Our sin is a huge deal. It isn't because God hates animals. It's because God loves animals and they have value. That is why the sacrificial system is important. Something of great value died in order to forgive sins in the Old Testament. I don't know if that was just for me or if that helps anybody else to think about. But Old Testament sacrificial system only works because God values animals. Because people value animals. I'm not going to stop eating meat either unless God impresses me to. Because one of the built-in features of these animal carcasses is they taste delicious. You may have noticed but we should never mistreat God's creation. We should never take lightly how important life is. 
we become we become very calloused. And perhaps we always were as human beings, just very calloused. But you'll notice that God kept his promise to Abram. Even though Abram tried to take it into his own hands and messed up everything, as people do, God was still faithful. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that God is continually faithful. When faced with people that are unbelieving and trying to do it themselves. And that gives me hope for our world now. When you see the nature of God, people speak of the God of the Old Testament as being rageful and mean. And somehow he changed during the New Testament. My God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cared very much for these people. That's why he gave them away. He selected them and gave them away to be near to him. That is grace. I believe that's why Paul calls this new covenant we have grace upon grace. There was grace already there. Now we have this new grace. And it's still hard to follow. It is so hard to be faithful to God. And he knows that. And Christ died once for all. There is forgiveness. I believe part of asking for forgiveness is understanding how great our sin is. Because if you don't understand the gravity of your trespass, I'm not sure you can appreciate the grace. But that is why I believe Jesus came. That is why I know Jesus came. Because we needed saving. Because we are depraved. And even back in Genesis, and I believe this is the second time in Genesis when it tells us, look forward. Help is on the way. Keep looking forward. So I know over the next month, two things are going to happen. You're going to hear a lot of Christmas music. You're going to see a lot of commercials. And people are going to tell you Merry Christmas. How are you going to respond when you're walking into the Walmarts, as they call it in my brother's area of the world, they pluralize it, I have no idea. The Walmarts. And you go down there. And someone comes walking out and they just like, Merry Christmas, and they keep walking. How are you going to respond? It would be if these kids would just blah, 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 right? How are you really going to respond? Are you going to complain? Or, since it's culturally appropriate for this narrow window during the holiday season, You could say something really overtly Christian to that person because they already invited you to. Merry Christmas unto us as son is given. This is amazing. Am I going to do that? I hope so. This gives you an opportunity to overtly, just very overtly, talk about Jesus 
Because they kind of asked you to. Merry Christmas. Jesus loves you. You started it. Happy holidays. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays doesn't hurt my feelings. But if I say Merry Christmas immediately after that, well, they started it. Which I've noticed, if someone tells me Happy Holidays and I say Merry Christmas, they almost always return my Merry Christmas. Have you ever noticed that? You don't have to be offended. It's easy to get offended. It does no good. It doesn't help. It gets between you and God. That's all being offended does. Nothing happens except you get further from God. Don't get offended. Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. If they don't return it, that's fine. That's fine. Believe it or not, telling people Merry Christmas actually doesn't fall under the category of evangelism, but it can open a door. Because people have to acknowledge that they just brought up Jesus to you. And it's amazing. Same thing happens at Easter. If I'm not so mad to be spouting off, why are we even celebrating the blah, 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 right? If I get off my high horse, people are like, Happy Easter, be like, Happy Resurrection Day. Indeed. He is risen. When the cashier tells you that, they can't even argue because it's written all over the stuff they're selling. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Right? Christmas and Easter. As a church, we should be celebrating this for a whole different reason. You can talk about Jesus as much as you want right now. Unless you're a public school teacher. In which case, you can talk about Jesus a little bit. But the rest of us, culturally, you can talk about Jesus as much as you want right now. Anybody gets upset, people will judge them for it. It's the rules. I didn't make them. That just seems to be how society's going right now. Celebrate it. If we don't celebrate it, it goes away. Anyway. The reason I bring up Abram is to bring up Jesus. If you can do so without pain, would you please stand with me? Father God, I thank you for your scriptures. Father, I thank you for the examples we have in scripture of faithfulness and obedience. I pray that you would give us... Give us the will to be faithful and obedient. Father God, I thank you so much for your son. I pray that we would take his birth seriously. I pray that we would take his life seriously. I pray that we would take his ministry seriously. I pray that we would take his death seriously. And that we would take his resurrection seriously. Lord God, I pray that you bless the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, that's going to bring us to our time announcements, prayer, and sharing, which will be led by Elaine Piazza, which, again, I am very encouraged to see 